Amen. Thanks, Nate. Uh, we will be worshiping uh, together again just as we take our rice and beans offering in a little while. Well, welcome to week four, the penultimate message in our impoverished series where we have been challenged to change the way we see the world in order to change the world that we see. In a few moments, we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 10, and this is one of those messages where I'm going to just basically, I'm going to expound uh, the book of Hebrews for us in this time, and this is one of those messages where we really do encourage you to have an access to God's Word. So whether that's electronic form, if you brought a, an older technology Bible like I'm using on the stage, open that to Hebrews 10. But if you haven't got access to the Scriptures, you can just raise your hands in the air right now, and our ushers will be delighted to give you a copy of the Scriptures, because today we're going to work through uh, the book of Hebrews. And my encouragement today is simply this. I believe that when we change the way we see the church, we can change the world. I really believe that. I believe that the church is the hope for the world. But in order for the world to be changed through Christ's church, embodying Christ's mission, that basically means that we, his church, need to get up and go. We need to go. See, Jesus never said to his disciples, hey, come follow me to the synagogue. Come follow me to church. Jesus looked at his disciples and said, come follow me into the towns and the villages. And some of them heard him, and they did. They followed him. And they saw what he did. Preached. He taught. He healed the sick. And they were amazed. It was great. And then he looked at 12 of them and he said, you go do it. Kind of freaked them out a little bit. Then he looked at the 70 and he said, you go do it. But they went. They came back rejoicing. And those folks went out not in disgust to sort people out, but in love to help people out. And it truly changed the world. See, in order to change the world with the life-giving message of the gospel, God's people need to follow Jesus' lead into the world because Jesus didn't say, I'm going to save you so that you can come to church. Jesus said, I'm going to save you so that you can follow me into the world. Now, if all of this is true, it kind of begs a question, doesn't it? What on earth are you doing here? Haven't you got somewhere better to be? Some of you may think so by the time I get into this message, because this message is going to challenge us. I mean, if Jesus really was intent on fashioning a group of people that would take the, the life-giving message of the gospel to the ends of the world, why do we spend so much of our time here? Why do you come here? Some of you are checking us out, and you're thinking, oh my Lord, why did I come here? This is where the book of Hebrews is really important. Because in the book of Hebrews, we find a conversation that is going on between the author of Hebrews, and we really don't know who the author is, 
to a group of Jewish believers, clearly Jewish because there is so much Jewish content that's in there, and he is reminding them about why they need to gather for worship. So if you have a Bible, open it, if you haven't already, to Hebrews uh, chapter 10. I'm going to read from verse 19. If the ushers gave you a copy of the Scriptures, that's on page 1,211. And I'm going to read from verses 19 through 25. And we're basically going to ask the question, why does the author of Hebrews believe it is so important for the church to gather in worship? Why are we doing this when our mandate is to be in the world? Why? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance of faith and what faith brings, having a heart sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Uh, stop there just for a second. Some people say the reason, the primary reason that we gather together in church is because this is the place where we draw near to God. That's why we're here. I do hope that during our worship, you draw near to God. I do hope that as the word is opened up, the Spirit of God takes this and, and it somehow hooks you and takes you into the deeper truths of the faith. I hope that happens for you. But let me just say, if the reason that you gather together in worship is because this is the place where you draw near to God, then you have completely understood the finished work of Jesus. You do not understand it at all. That's a strong statement. Look at this. You see, in Hebrews, drawing near to God is an act that transcends time and place. This is what the book of Hebrews is about. It's about what happened when not just a priest entered the holy place, but the great high priest entered into a place that no human priest could ever go. What happened as a result of that to the human race? is something, access to God, that transcends time and place. It is not something, accessing God, drawing close to God, that is limited to the church gathering. I want to say it again. If the goal of you coming to church is solely to draw near to God, then you have failed to grasp the significance of the finished work of Jesus, a work that gives you constant access to the Father. Is that the reason why you're here? Because of all of the other 170 churches in this town, that's why the nation calls this church city, by the way. You found one church, this church, that helps you draw near to God. Because at the end of the day, coming to worship is all about you and God, right? No. Wrong. Interestingly, as you begin to unpack the pages of Hebrews... What, uh, what happens here is that you get into, very quickly, into the idea that in writing what the author does, in chapter 10 of Hebrews, 
He is intentionally dealing with an issue. And that issue is Jewish believers who have grown up with their custom of going to church. You remember Jesus, as was his custom, attended the synagogue in Luke? These Jewish believers who had a custom of going to their synagogue, of going to church, now weren't. A massive group of people weren't, which is why the next section of Hebrews we'll read in just a moment actually puts this out there. There were a large group of Jewish believers that weren't attending church anymore. And what the author does is he writes his epistle to remind people that what has happened to those people who, through not attending church, something has happened, can actually happen to us if we don't. Now, I believe that we live in a day and age in America with this message of Hebrews chapter 10 and this one verse about attending church, the worship service, has never been more relevant George Barner, a number of years ago, did a study, and he said there are 23, get this, 23 million people who classify themselves as born again. Okay, that basically means that they have understood who Jesus Christ is, what he did on the cross for them, and they have confessed with their mouth, believed in their heart, that God had raised him from the dead, and they recognize as a result of that, they have an unfettered, an unchained access to the Father by means of the Holy Spirit. That's what being born again means. 23 million people, Barna says, in America classify themselves as being born again and yet they are unchurched. You know what that means? They don't go to church. He nails it down a little bit further. He said, in fact, there are 10 million Christians in America who only, born again, again, same thing, born again Christians who only attend church at Easter and at Christmas and not at all for the six months in between. We've got to face the fact here that we live in a country right now which actually is experiencing something very similar to what prompted the author to Hebrews to write this. Did you know that every year in America, 4,000 churches close their doors? Did you know that every month in America, get this, every month, according to Barna, 1,500 pastors go on the unemployment list? And yet we have 23 million born-again Christians. And we're closing the doors of churches. We're putting pastors on the unemployment list. Did you know that we live in a day when 50% of churches in America claim, can only claim, at least one salvation a year? That means 50% of churches don't. Whether we like it or not, we live in a country where the relevance of the church is being questioned, not by people on the outside of the church, but also by people who were once inside and inside here, but are no longer worshiping here. And the question is, why? I believe part of the answer to why they're not here is that our faith and the expression of it has been focused on the wrong thing rather than taking the life-transforming message of Jesus into the world. And speaking messages of life and hope, we focused on the wrong things and we've become religious and it's driving people nuts. But the upshot of all of this is, what does the author of Hebrews say to those people reading this letter to encourage them and to remind them about why they are here? Why are you here? In a day 
in a time, in a place, in a nation where millions and millions of Christians are not. Why are you? And what does that have to do with the type of messages that we give you, the type of series that we teach, the challenges that we give? Folks, you hopefully will draw near to God through being here, but let me tell you, according to Hebrews, that is not the primary reason for you to be here. There's another reason. And I want to look at that. Have a look at verse 23 with me. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Here we go. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Why are we here? Clearly here in verse 25, the author of Hebrews says, don't give up the habit of meeting together. There's a reason why we do it. And yet Bono of you two says this. I do not believe they're attending a regular, uh, that I do not believe not attending, don't you hate double negatives, just speak the positive man. I do not believe not attending a regular church service takes away a person's beliefs, Christianity, or their salvation. I have faith that Jesus is, I would say, fairer than that. He says, more fair than that. Think about that. There's so much we would say to be true in that, wouldn't we? Does not attending church on a Sunday remove your salvation? No. But here is, a, here is a person who champions justice and yet is totally disconnected from the church. Totally disconnected. And yet, the author of Hebrews says something completely different. The author of Hebrews says, connect. So what's going on? Why are we here? What is the author of Hebrews telling us? Well, look at that verse again. Verses 24 and 25. What we have here in this section, in verses 24 and 25, are two encouragements. The first encouragement is to spur. I want you to see this. The second encouragement is to encourage. These are exhortations, okay? These are encouragements. Gathering to church, verse 25, is sandwiched between those two Exhortations. Can you see that? Let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds, encouraging one another all the more. And the gathering of the people of God is actually sandwiched between those two exhortations. Now, I want you to see something else here. This verse, this section, starts with the, the words, let us. Let us. There are three let us encouragements in chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Let us draw near to God. Let us hold unswervingly to the faith, uh, to the hope that we have. And thirdly, let us spur one another on. Attending church is in this third exhortation. Let us spur one another on. And so if we want to understand why Hebrews says, in a day when so many people are not attending worship, you must, we have to recognize, it's connected to the idea of spurring and encouraging. 
The reason that we are here is not because worship is good for me. The reason that we are here is worship is good for the world. Too many Christians ask themselves, what about me? My worship style, right? My, me, it's not about you. It's about spurring one another and encouraging one another. The question is, why? What's going on here? This word spur is an awesome word. It's one of the best words, I think, in the, in the New Testament. Okay, it means stimulation or provocation. Let us consider how we may provoke one another, how we may stimulate one another, how we may stir up one another. You getting the feel for this? I like this word. It's used one other time in the New Testament. And I want you to turn there with me. It's in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. If you've got one of the Bibles from the Ashes, you just turn back a couple of books, okay, and you can get into the book of Acts. The Acts chronicles the early days of the church, the growth of the early church. And in Acts chapter 15, verse 39, we have this word. But if you're in Acts chapter 15, you'll notice that from verse 36, as you're looking at this, Acts 15 from verse 36, you're noticing that the headline here for this section is something like the disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. You all got that? So this provocation that happens, happens right here. Let's read this. Acts chapter 15, verses 36 and 39. And I'm spending time on this because I want you to feel it. Because this feeling that happened in this relationship is the feeling that we need to get when we gather together or there's a portion of our church that is unbiblical and is not doing right by you. And I want everybody who comes on this pulpit to do right by you before God, even though you may not like the way it feels. Acts chapter 15, verse 36, through the end of 15. Look at this. Sometime later, Paul and Barnabas, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns. Notice that again. Jesus didn't call his disciples to actually come to church. He called them to go into the towns and the villages. They went and did that, okay? And then later on, they will go back and see how they were doing. Let's go and see those places where we preach the word of the Lord, and let's just check up that they're doing okay. Verse 37, Barnabas wanted to call John, also called Mark, and wanted to take them with him. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. You get the picture here, right? John was a, John was a young guy. The heat was really turned up, and John shrunk back. He didn't go with them. He backed off. Barnabas felt that John, Mark, was basically a young guy who'd learned his lesson, and Paul said, fat chance. One strike with me, bud, you're out. He's done. Now, what's great with this in 2 Timothy? The last person that Paul calls for before he dies is John Mark. John Mark proved himself. Paul needed to learn what grace was in the way he treated other people. And later on, he was humble enough to actually acknowledge, you know what? John Mark proved himself. Folks, some people in your family, they need a second chance. They need a second chance. Don't know who that word is for, but it's for someone. Look at the rest of this. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Do you know what that word sharp disagreement is? Spur. Same word. 
Only two times is it found in the New Testament. Here in Acts chapter 15, where there was a provocation over a person that resulted in a negative action. The negative action was a sharp disagreement. That is the spurring. They were spurred to go their separate ways. It's negative. So the only other time this word spurring is used, you get the feeling, right? There is a provocation. How do you think that felt? Have any of you brought in here a sharp disagreement with another person? Husbands and wives don't look at one another. It's rather obvious. You, you know what it feels like, right? Well, when the author of Hebrews says, let us consider then how we may spur one another on to love and good works, not forsaking meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another until the day approaches. What he's basically saying is the responsibility for the church worship service is to provoke you, is to stir you, is to rile you. You like this? Doesn't it feel awful, doesn't it? But why? Why on earth do we need to be provoked? What are we being provoked to? The answer here is actually in that verse, in verse 24. Let us consider then how we may provoke one another, stir one another to love and good deeds. That's the reason that we're here. We need to be provoked. We need to be encouraged towards two things, love and good deeds. Why does the author of Hebrews land there? And what does that got to do with us? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. There's two things that we gather for. We need to be provoked, stirred to love and good deeds. The first thing is love. I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. This is the first time in the book of Hebrews that these, the phrases love and good deeds are kind of joined together as they are. If we want to know what love looks like, being provoked to love, we, we are definitely, clearly, explicitly being taken back to this passage. This is what love looked like, and he's provoking them to this. Hebrews 6 from verse 10. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience will inherit what has been promised. What has love got to do with the church body, right? Have a look at this text. This is amazing. In chapter 10 that we've read, 19 through 25, and chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, we have the presence of the Holy Trinity, as we would call it, the Holy Triad, faith, hope, and love. And yet, we're not to spur one another onto faith in this text, are we? In Hebrews 10. We're not to spur one another onto hope. You know Why? Faith and hope is something that you are called to do alone. Love, however, needs a body.
You may be able to express faith and hope alone. And I pray that everybody in here can express faith and hope alone. That is your responsibility to express faith. Where does the ability to do that come from? God. How does this work? The faith is both both a human responsibility and an act of God. If it's not an act of God, then it is a work. We're saved by works, and that is a work of faith. God gives us the ability to have faith. And yet the reality is it is your responsibility to exercise that faith. You do faith on your own. Oh, yes, we will come alongside you, and we will lift up your arms, and we will encourage you, but we cannot provoke you in the same way as we can to provoke you to love. Hope and faith, it's your job. You can do that on your own. You can do it in the body as well. Of course you can. But can you love on your own? Can you love on your own? Love needs a body, and not just anybody, folks. Loving anybody is the way the world does love. But according to the Bible, love needs Christ's body. That's what love needs. We are to be provoked to love. Why? Jesus says, love one another, and the world will know that you are my disciples. That's why. Whether we like this or not, Christ's body and the way we love people who are so different from us and often so annoying to us is the way that God's glory gets manifest to a world. We can't do that without a body. We can't do that. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 21 says, can the hand say to a foot, I don't need you? And the answer is, of course you can't. And he says in the same way, all of you are different. You've been given different gifts. You've got different stories. You've got different issues. But love needs a body. It needs Christ's body. And God has ordained it to be so that the power of the love in the church is the mighty witness to the world. See, Anybody who has spent any time in a church knows the Christians are really annoying. Right? We get this personal revelation from God that applies to us, and all of a sudden we think it applies to everyone. Right? Or, or God has convicted us of a certain type of behavior, and now we see this behavior in everyone, and we can't help but provoke people to do this, right? Because that's what we do. How many people do you know that used to worship here, but don't worship here anymore because someone has hurt them. Just a few, I think. See, we need to be provoked to love because loving people different from you that are sitting by the side of you is a really hard thing to do. We need to be provoked to love because it is the easiest thing in the world to back off. But when we change the way we see the church, we can change the world if we commit to love the church in the way that Jesus does. But it's so hard to do because we can be so annoying. Baseball season's coming up and I've got two boys in baseball this year. So that means I'm probably gonna spend many a night at the baseball field, which for a guy who played cricket is a really difficult thing for me to do. <laughs> and invariably what will happen is something like this, that some of the parents on the sideline will get heated. I don't get that heated at baseball, I don't really get it. I get heated at soccer, that's what I do. But invariably then, something like this would happen, right? A coach will go to a little eight-year-old and he'll say, hey, you kind of know the rules here, right? When the umpire calls you out, you're out. Yes. You know the rules, right? That when you, the umpire says you didn't make it the first base, you didn't make it the first base. You get that, right? Right. You get the fact that we win as a team, we lose as a team. We are a team, right? Yes. You get the fact that it's driven by respect, right? Yes. So the coach looks at the little boy and says, can you go and tell that to your dad because he doesn't seem to get it. <laughs> we don't like spending time with people like that, do we? They're annoying. And yet we're all in here because you know what unites us? The church is actually 
a gathering of people who acknowledge that we're messed up, that we're broken, we are thankful for the grace of God, and we are outed. We come out as sinful, broken people. And do you know what happens when you get lots of sinful, broken people in one room? It's called friction. It's called tension. And the easiest thing in the world to do, folks, is to back off and not get involved. Online people, the easiest thing to do is basically to stay at home and not to be here. And folks, there is a direct correlation between the number of people who worship here and the number of people who watch online. When physical attendance is low, virtual attendance is high. And we've got to realize the power of the body. We need to be provoked to love because love is the way in which God demonstrates his love and his reality and his presence in the world. And love needs a body, not just any body. It needs Christ's body, and you are a part of it. And if you spend any time with broken people, you get to realize how hard it is. The reason we gather is because we need to be encouraged not to quit loving the unlovable, because we were unlovable, and God loved us. That's why we're here. Turn over with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Love always goes together with good deeds. Always does. The motivation for our works is never self-righteousness. It's always love. This is how we know love, the Bible says. That while we were still far off, God loved us. And what's the deed? And sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. Love always motivates deeds. And so here in chapter 10, Verses 32 through 35, we see some of the deeds that these people used to do. And this section of the text here helps us realize what the main issue is. Hebrews 10, 32 through 35, these are the deeds they used to do. Remember those early days after you had received the light when you endured in great conflict full of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those so treated. That word side by side is the word for fellowship. You fellowshiped. You fellowshiped with others as they were being abused, persecuted, and misused. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw, it away, throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. These people are unbelievable, aren't they? They stood side by side with those people getting persecuted. They sold their property. They invested everything they had in loving other people. And yet these are the very people who are marked out to be reminded that just because you did it yesterday doesn't give you a pass on doing it today. They're being provoked. Even the people that do love really well need to be reminded, don't stop, don't quit, keep going, because love never stops. What the author is telling us is something incredible, their willingness to love was shown through their good deeds. To enter into the church is therefore a commitment to live within a new humanity. Oh, a messed up one. If you'd have told me when I was a teenager that I would be living in Holland, I would think you meant the Netherlands. 
this artificial intelligence thought that this week too because I was living in Holland and this artificially intelligent computer sent me an email in Dutch. <laughs> Fortunately, my wife is German and I could read it, but I still found it funny. If you'd have told me as a teenager that I would end up here, and if you'd have told me in 2008 I would leave the warm of Florida for the cold of Michigan, I'd think you're crazy. But what has God done? He has actually, in his sovereign wisdom and through our choices, he has actually led us to be a part of a faith family together. This is the new humanity. And the deeds that we do are deeds of love. And it is a commitment to a new humanity, a humanity that is fashioned by a suffering Christ for the sake of a suffering world. It's really interesting, verse 25, that says, do not give up the habit of meeting together. Do not give up is literally do not forsake. It is the very same word that Jesus used on the cross as he, as he bore the weight of sin and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reason we gather together is because God knows it is really hard to keep loving when people keep annoying. But love we must. And there is no point, the Bible says, loving the world and neglecting the saints. See, we worship a God who expressed his love by giving everything for them, but the author was writing to a group of people that would accept God's love but wouldn't show it to other people. And he says, how hypocritical is that? What does all this mean? So why do we get, gather here? I think one of the reasons that we gather here is because we all know we need to be provoked. And what that basically means, and I love this, is the gift of provocation is God's gift to the gathered church. Go back through church history. How many provocateurs have there been? This week, I spent some time reading about Hermas, a guy who provoked the church in around 140 AD to keep gathering together because their business exploits were taking them out of the church. I read about Tertullian, this guy who said, if you're not willing to actually go through the flames, then the next time you're willing to quit. All throughout history, there have been provocateurs that have basically stood before God's people and stirred the pot. And I'm really thankful that that basically means that God has given me the gift of provocation don't believe me? Ask my wife. She will testify to that. But how does that feel, folks? It doesn't feel good, does it? Any of you like being provoked? See, provocation is morally neutral. It's what you do with it that counts. None of us like being provoked, and yet the book of Hebrews says we need it. And we need it for a number of reasons. And I just want to go through a few of these reasons with you. We need to be provoked for a number of reasons. Turn with me, please, to Hebrews chapter 2. I'm just going to go through these really quickly. Hebrews chapter 2. Basically, the author of Hebrews says we need to be provoked because if we don't, we could drift away. Now, let me just say this. If you are a thoroughgoing Reformed person here, you're going to struggle with all of these verses. I'm thankful that they are verses from the Bible, so you can argue with the Bible, not with me, okay? 
What you have here is conditional eschatology. In other words, it is choices. Your future is determined by the choices that you make. There is language in here that forces me to be a compatibilist, not a reformed theologian. Now, I realize we've got 170 reformed churches. Many of you are from that background. Lots of truth in there. But all of this section is going to force you to do the right thing because your future depends on it. Because God's future depends on it. Now, I don't know how that works. I do know that whatever happens, God will win in the end. And I do know there are certain scriptures that are there that remind me when everything seems overwhelming that God's got this. Verse 39 of Hebrews chapter 10, we're on the victory side because God will always win. And yet, the other side of that is there are other scriptures like the ones I'm going to go through right now that give us a real kick up the rear end. And sometimes we just need to allow them to do that. We need to be provoked to realize that this world is broken. God has a plan, and we're a part of the solution because it's the easiest thing in the world to abrogate responsibility. And God says, how dare you do that when I've given everything for you? So look at this with me. Chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Drifting away here, that word, may basically means to be swept along in a torrential current with no anchoring point to keep us safe. The reason we need to be provoked the author of Hebrews says, is because there is this climate going around in the church right now that causes people to think that you can be saved and not be connected to Christ's body. That you can actually live in a world and not step out when people are suffering and people are hurting. And he says, I want to tell you, that's not the way the things of the faith work. If you allow yourself to fall into that trap, you will be swept away with everyone else with no fixed anchor point. That's what this basically means. The next one here is chapter 3, verses 7 through 15. You will grow hard. You will grow hard. Unless you're provoked, you will grow hard. Look at verses 7 and 8 in Hebrews chapter 3. So as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, conditional eschatology, conditional, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness. He's using an example of an older generation of people that didn't inherit the promised land because they hardened their hearts. Go down to verse 12. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has sinful, unbelieving hearts that turns away from the living God. We have come, verse 14, to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original conviction firmly to the end. You don't like that part, right? If indeed you hold to your original conviction until the end. Go on to verse, back to verse 6. And we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence in the hope in glory which we have. You're getting the point here, right? We have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to hold firm. We have a responsibility not to grow hard. And unless we're being challenged, growing hard is the easiest thing in the world. Let me ask you, is your faith as passionate today as it was yesterday? Is it as alive as it was last month? If not, why not? Because through Jesus, the finished work, you have complete access to God. You don't need to be here for that to happen. Let me go on. You fall short. Have a look at this one. Chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful. That word be careful there is literally let us fear. Let us be afraid of this. Okay? Let us be afraid of this, that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. This word fallen short is basically to have failed to reach a goal, that you will have missed it, that you turn up too late. 
Any of you wanted to be a part of something and you turned up too late? It's basically what the idea is. The, the next one here is you become lazy. Chapter 6 and verse 12, we've already read this one. But it basically says here, we do not want any of you to become lazy. One of the first insights for me that God had given me this spiritual gift of provocation was when I was pastoring in Hamburg. I think I was about 28 at the time. I hadn't been there long. And this sweet, gracious American couple came up to me and said, Pastor, we used to love coming to this church, but we don't anymore. And I was like, oh, Lord, what have I done now? And they looked at me, and they basically said, you know, we just don't like the way you teach. Every time we come here, we are challenged, and we just don't like it. And then they said, but thank you, because that's exactly what we need. We were so comfortable in our faith that we didn't realize that God has blessed us with so much. And to he who has much has been given, much is required. Thank you for loving us enough to provoke me. Because we were lazy. And it was in that moment I kind of woke up to this idea that one of the greatest gifts that God gives in a person's life is the spirit of provocation, is the gift of provocation. Oh, we don't like the way it feels, but we need it. Because if we don't, we will drift away, we will grow hard, we will fall short, we will become lazy, and lastly, we will lose hope. The reason we need to be provoked here is because there's always hope. Somebody may need to hear that today. Look, there's hope. Verse 39, we are not on the side of defeat. We are on victory side. God always wins in the end. You are on the winning side, so don't give up. Don't quit. What does all this mean? I really believe this. The greater the impoverishment of the Christian, the greater the peril for the world. See, the church exists between the peril and pain of this world and the promises of God that are yes and amen in faith. And we bridge the gap. And the more impoverished we are, the more in peril and pain people are. God loves the world too much for us to stay comfortable. And what's the upshot of this? The upshot of this is, if we don't provoke you to see that this world is broken, that God has a plan, and that you are part of the solution, then we basically fail a broken world, and we do a disservice to the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. And church, we can't do that. Now this, of course, is just one aspect of the New Testament, right? But it's an important one. And unless we as, as, as a church provoke you to continue on in love and good deeds, we do a disservice to this world. And we really can't do that. And so it's for this reason I really do believe that if we change the way we see the church, if we change the way we see our corporate gatherings, yes, we come in here and we will draw near to God, but that's not why we come. But when we come, we realize that we have the God-given responsibility to provoke God's people to love and good deeds because God says, let's do this. Let's change the world. And think about it. What would happen if each and every one of us would truly internalize the truth that we've been saying from the beginning of this series, that the power of the church is not on the pulpit, the power of the church is in the pews. Some people come into this place and they see it's so immaculate. 
everything is so clean. And they think that's what we're like. They don't see the amount of work that goes in standing with people who need to experience the hope and the life of Jesus. And that's something that we want to inspire and encourage you to continue to do through the week within your families. Make love and good deeds your basic mode of operation in the world because as Jesus said, it is through our love that they will know that we are his disciples. So church, love and do good deeds. And one of the good deeds that we're challenged to do is to give everything. The example for this is Jesus himself who literally gave everything, his own life for you. And it's in this desire to reflect that, that we really sense God leading us to take up our rice and beans offering. Just investing the money that we had saved as a family through the rice and beans challenge. We've got a family of, what, six in the house? That's a lot of money. We're going to invest that today because we need to be provoked to love, not just love, and good deeds. And there is something about giving that actually provokes us, isn't it? And so I'm going to invite the worship team to come back. And they're going to lead us in a song that is basically entitled, Everything and Nothing Less. And as you sing this, some of you may be unfamiliar with this. Look at the words. It is so strong in its encouragement for us to love and to continue to love by giving everything. And it's through this offering that we give a commitment to God to give everything back to him. As the team get ready, let's go to God in prayer as we prepare to give. Father, humbly we stand before you, acknowledging that what unites us here is what we have in common. We have Jesus in common. We have salvation in common. We have your love for us in common, a love, Father, that led to your Son, Jesus Christ, laying down his life for us, giving everything. Father, I pray that today we will have been provoked to love and to continue to love. Father, I pray that today as we give, you would receive this offering as an expression of our love and devotion and our willingness to give everything to you. Father, we thank you that you gave everything to us. And we say to you that we will give everything and nothing less. Thank you and we bless you in Jesus' name.